Welcome to the Resilience Rising podcast with me, your host, Jen Scottney. With the help of my guests, we will be getting curious about what resilience is, how we develop it and why we need it. This podcast is here to explore all things resilience. My guest today is Rachel Modest. Rachel has been singing since she was three years old. She developed a love of gospel music through her upbringing with a Pentecostal church. And it was there that she learned about harmonies, gospel choirs and improvisation. She studied music at school and went on to complete contemporary music studies at Bretton Hall College of the University of Leeds. For her final project on the course, Rachel set up a gospel choir, a choir that has continued to run for over 20 years with Rachel as director and now goes by the name of Wakefield Community Gospel Choir. Her prominence as a talented singer-songwriter was firmly established with her involvement as lead singer of The Bluefoot Project. The band received high praise from the music media on release of their album Brave in 2003. In September 2021, Rachel appeared on Series 11 of the ITV singing competition show The Voice. In her audition, she performed a cover of For All We Know by Donny Hathaway, which had all four judges turn on their chairs and give her a standing ovation. Judge Johnny Muir said, The biggest compliment I can give you is that that is probably one of the best performances I've ever seen on this show. The Sir Tom Jones said, you are the real deal. You sing right from there, straight from the heart, and you have the instrument to show it. Fantastic. I loved it. She chose Sir Tom Jones as her mentor, and over the weeks we saw her progress through as far as the semi-finals. She was nominated for Best Performance in a TV Show at the Urban Music Awards recently, and today she's come to talk to us all about resilience and the time she has survived and thrived in the music industry. Welcome to the podcast, Rachel. Thank you very much. <laughs> I was hoping to play some music that oh, you singing, but we've not managed to source that. But I am going to put links to that audition that I mentioned in the show notes. And yeah, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. <laughs> Mm. Ah, so the music industry. <laughs> I know oh, not, oh. I know nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Is resilience something you might need? I'm guessing so. I think so, yes, definitely. I think that um the music industry is um both very male dominated, um, very ageist and very London centric. I think <laughs> in this country in particular, definitely. Um so if you uh, are outside of those three things. I think um, making music and getting heard and and getting distributed appropriately um, and getting gigs appropriately is quite difficult. It can be, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I'm really interested to hear how you've managed to stay in that industry or maybe you haven't always been in that industry. I don't know whether there's had periods where you just had to walk away from it. Um, but yeah, resilience, like what does that mean to you if I say resilience? I think uh, it probably means, uh, well, to me, it means um, kind of surviving and thriving against all the odds. So when 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 stuff gets chucked at you, it's how well you're going to deal with that. Absolutely. Yeah. And just going back to kind of you as that little girl singing, 
school and church like was <laughs> was um being in the music industry being a professional singer was that all you ever wanted to do yeah definitely it was something that I wanted to do but one of the things about being part of that world the Pentecostal world is that um whilst the creativity and the music making side of it is wonderful um as a child you you have a lot of restrictions placed upon you um for example actually not necessarily being allowed to listen to any secular music for example having to hide to listen to the likes of Stevie Wonder and Chaka Khan and Prince because you knew that if you got found out you'd properly get told off yeah absolutely oh really so you weren't openly oh, yeah. listening to those I didn't realize no, that no 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 not at all you were definitely not allowed and my brother um he used to collect uh, 45s um and hide them under his bed and they were like wonderful sort of uh, first pressing 45s you know and my dad found them and broke them all wow yeah yeah and who in the people that you'd kind of managed to smuggle in and listen to who were your kind of inspirations and idols during those times I think by far the one that sort of took me to a very different place was Stevie Wonder mm. um because I think that the I think a lot of the black singers kind of understand the struggle because they would have had uh, similar upbringings I know that Stevie Wonders was also quite restrictive um and also certainly when he went to work for Motown it was again very restricted and so all of those albums that came after songs in the key of life and music in my mind and um, talking book all of those songs had been written during the Motown years but he'd had to hide them because he didn't want Motown to sort of have the monopoly on how they were going to be performed or how they were going to be recorded. So, you know, even, even he had restrictions placed on him. So to listen to that sort of stuff and being aware of that from a very early age, it kind of offered me a little bit of an escape. Mm. Um, so yeah, loved Stevie Wonder. And what was it like at school? Was that kind of a similar um, kind of church denomination and people at school that you were with or so, was that the where the freedom was so I went to um uh, just a, your ordinary comprehensive school it was Hansworth Grange comprehensive school in Sheffield Ooh. um shout out it was, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it, was uh, it was an amalgamation of two schools um and we were the first year of that amalgamation however even so I was probably one of only about three black children in the school um, and because I was so different not only in in colour and culture but I was also very different in terms of um, my ultra-religious upbringing I looked different mm. so for example I wasn't allowed to wear trousers I could only wear skirts um, and you know my friends would see me on the bus on the way to church with a hat on and be like, you know, on Mondays, like, what on earth were you doing on number 52 bus with a beret? Like, <laughs> seriously, this is like the 1990s and you're on a bleeding bus wearing a, wearing a green top, a black skirt and a beret. Like, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't cool. <laughs> <laughs> and again, Look. at school, my, my sanctuary was, of course, the music room. Mm. You know, it's where you went to escape the bullies. It's where you went to 
just lock yourself away and play a piano for a while. It really is. I loved it. And what yeah. were your music teachers like at school? I'm guessing they uh, didn't look like amazing. you as well. Were these kind of white? Were they male or oh, female? Yeah. yeah, yeah, they were. They were. But um, in fact, I'm still in touch on LinkedIn with my um, old uh, music teacher, Mr. Draper. Oh, who, I hope he's proud of you. I love him. I do. <laughs> I love him. Uh, because he was the one who saw what I was going through at school, offered me a, a safe haven, introduced me to pieces of music that I'd never heard before, like Beethoven, um, the Moonlight Sonata in particular. He was like, you should learn this. You really should. It'll, it'll teach you a lot about, about writing and about, about being able to play the piano. I was like, yeah, absolutely. And I used to just sit with him and, and, and he'd play me stuff and tell me what it was all about and, you know, he also introduced me to Bach and Chopin and I'll be forever grateful um, for him, uh, for that side of me. It was great. And definitely could have gone down a different path, do you think, if it wasn't for that influence and that support that you had? Oh, 100%. 100%. Because in my other life, I was amazing, raising merry hell. I really was. You know, I, I was doing whatever I wanted to do and lying to my parents about doing it. So... <laughs> You know, school was the place where I had a little bit of stability um, and I could pretty much be myself within the music department as well. It was great. And at that time, what was, well, kind of moving on when you were coming to leave school, um, what were the career plans then? Because one thing that I didn't mention in the intro was that you've also spent however many decades as a teacher yourself. So was that yeah. <laughs> was that part of the career plan or was it always just just music first so when I um used to speak to my parents about what I wanted to be when I grew up um I used to say I wanted to be a musician and uh my parents would always tell me that that was not possible <laughs> at all can't do that uh, you must have something to fall back on so the thing to fall back on was was teaching so yeah so I got um I got my GCSE uh, in music went on to do A levels and, and did all that um, became a teacher and then weirdly went straight back to Handworth Grange School to get some experience of teaching <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and worked in the music department for a couple of weeks it was brilliant <laughs> oh was it good going back there <laughs> I loved it I loved going back there <laughs> your little safe space absolutely <laughs> So where does the kind of performing and the bands fit in? Did you meet at university? Yeah, so um, I went to Bretton Hall College, um, but being the contrary person that I was, I wasn't that interested in meeting the other students at Bretton Hall. To be fair, I found some of them quite pretentious. I'm probably not supposed to say that, but I did. Um, so a lot of the time I spent exploring Wakefield and just popping into pubs and that and thinking wow I wonder who's in here oh I can hear music coming from here let's go in there um and then I met all of these people so one of the people that I met first uh was Uva um uh, this crazy dreaded man who came over to me and was like who on earth are you and what are you more, more than anything else um and we became friends I met uh, I met Matt um during that time um it was an old pub called the Tutton Shive and the Tutton Shive used to have um, used to have jam nights there every Monday night, and we used to go down and and you know meet people. It was great. And and to be fair, the original idea for the band formed at one of these jam nights. <laughs> Brilliant. 
And how was that your kind of first band that you were in, or were there others yeah. in the because you just hadn't been able to form them when you were no. at home? Now, university was a bit of a turning point for me um, because I, I was completely free then. You know, I could do whatever I wanted. So um, I won't say it was easy because I was also quite naive. And I think in some respects, I still probably am, um, even at 46. Um, and, and, and that comes to the fore sometimes when I'll have a conversation with Uber and he'll be like, you don't know that? And I'm like, I was today years old when I, you know, when I found this out, sort of thing. I mean, there's a, um, pl- there's a plot twist that Uber is now your partner. Is that- yeah, <laughs> now, there is a plot twist that 20 odd years later, he is now my partner. But yeah, um, so yeah, I, I, in a lot of respects, I was quite a naive person. Um, and still am Uh, but university really was a turning point for me and so I was able to kind of explore everything so everything from singing madrigals to to playing in an orchestra to singing in a jazz uh, I think it was like 12 people in a jazz uh, vocal group um, to a funk um, band and then to the Bluefoot Project so I got three years of just playing music which was brilliant and then it was during that time as well that I discovered I could write as well which was something that I'd never explored before oh really because you often hear like musicians that they wrote songs when they were six (laughs) (laughs) awesome on the family but you you found that later yeah yeah absolutely I mean I used to make stuff up but I wouldn't say that I you know I never kind of said oh I I write songs oh Mm. no you know I just used to mess around a little bit but yeah um, the songwriting came much later. <laughs> and how did the kind of record deal with the Bluefoot project happen? Was that something that you found pretty easy or is that somewhere where you needed a bit of perseverance and cope with some rejections? So that was really quite strange um, because so at that point we'd, we'd started the band and we'd got this bank of like 10 or 12 songs that we, we played repeatedly at every gig Um there's only 12 that we knew. And, <laughs> Sometimes um, in a different order, or was it always oh the same set? <laughs> Keep them on their toes. So we're going to play five minutes and we're going to segue into a jam bit that we've never done before. Uh, so that'll kill 10 minutes of our 45 minute set, won't it? Uh, so yeah, it was a little bit like that. Um, but we went to play at uh, the Clarence Park Festival, which is a small um, local festival in Wakefield. Um, at the bandstand in Wakefield and uh, we played there and then we came off stage and this very very tall um, very shaggy haired very bearded uh, man came up to us and said hi my name's Pat Fulgoni and and I want to manage you and I also run my own record label called Chocolate Fire Garden I'd like to sign you and we all went yeah (laughs) (laughs) and within probably a year of that initial meeting um, we compiled the songs that we were going to do. We played Glastonbury once and we were going to be on the bill for the next year. Um, and yeah, we were doing all these brilliantly high profile gigs um, and I was kind of thrust into the world of media and doing lots of kind of interviews and stuff. It was a brilliant, brilliant time. We had all sorts of adventures. I think where where there was a struggle was the, I suppose, my my naivety and my slight inability to separate um, being part of a band and that permeating my my personal life as well. So 
um, as you know, I uh, I married um, the bass player in the band and also the programmer. And we lived together for um, a while. We were together for about nine years in total. And uh, we wrote together as well. So while the going was good, it was really easy. Dead, dead easy. Until it wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> and then when the going was bad, you know, the, not only did... Um, the, the, the divorce happened, but also the band had to go as well, um, which, again, I think that was my naivety more than anything else. My, my thoughts of, oh, wasn't it, wouldn't it be a great fairy tale if... Do you know what I mean? When actually it's not, is it? I mean, yeah, <laughs> You've but you learn to live with <laughs> I mean, you're in your twenties, <laughs> weren't you, at this point? I mean, I think we're all can forgive ourselves for our naivety then. I definitely <laughs> Yeah, yeah. We got married when I was twenty three, I think. I was wow. twenty three. Yeah, yeah. Divorced by twenty seven. <laughs> <laughs> and just going back to the when that kind of fame hit, I mean how comfortable were you with being in the limelight getting up on stage has that never been a problem for you or was that something that you've struggled with at all I've always struggled with nerves always so prior to a gig um I'm not going to socialize with anybody I tend to sit with myself a little bit I'm very very quiet um people will come up to me and ask me whether I'm all right and I'll say yes I'm fine but I don't want to speak to anybody um, and I've always been a bit like that. When I get on stage and after I've sung the first line, I'm absolutely fine. But there is always fear at the at the beginning. Um, and then there's always a little bit of fear towards the end as well, because I know no one ever remembers your mistakes. I get that. But because you're so aware of your mistakes, sometimes after a gig, you're kind of then worrying about whether anybody saw it it's oh my god did anybody see this bum note or did anybody see me go out of tune or did anybody see me not sing that whole verse or forget my words or whatever so yeah there's that fear as well (laughs) well I've never noticed that (laughs) (laughs) I'm just good at hiding it (laughs) yeah okay is that the kind of thing like fake it till you make it type just really absolutely Absolutely. Eyes and teeth, isn't it? It's a little bit like what they teach little girls in dance schools, you know, when they're doing the splits and it really, really hurts, you know. Um, eyes and teeth girls, you know. <laughs> I've uh, never heard that before. <laughs> just got to smile and open your eyes. <laughs> You're not in pain. This does not hurt. <laughs> it's a little bit like that. It is. And teachings like that, you know, and I'm sure, I'm sure kind of maybe... Uh, being in court is, is a little bit like that as well. You you are, you're not, you're no longer you. You have to kind of put on a bit of a persona and it's a sort of a self-protection uh, mechanism as well. You know, I was always known when I was in my 20s as the bullshit singer, the one who opened her mouth and said stuff, the one who wasn't afraid to, you know, um, kind of put herself out there a little bit. And I did and, and, and played up to that role. But those people who were very, very close to me also saw the other very quiet side of me uh, that very few people see. It's, it's really weird, isn't it? You put on this mask, you go about your day to day job. And then when you, you know, when you're behind closed doors, you kind of then back to being the little girl you were. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I definitely recognise that as well in me. <laughs> that kind of... <laughs> complete introvert and shy but sometimes you just have to 
get over that. Otherwise, you'd never leave the house or do anything. Absolutely. Or... Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. And then, so how did that that person, <laughs> the non-Bolshe one, end up on national TV? <laughs> I mean, I know right. we're skipping over years and years there. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so in 2012, um, I jumped uh, in my naive way headlong into a relationship that I'd formed um, online. And um, for the first two or three years, it, it was good. Um, however... Uh, being the naive person that I am, I probably uh, ignored, oh, there he is, Sherlock, um, <laughs> ignored um, some of the red flags um, that were there. So, for example, how very quickly things progress and how very uh, love bombing he was at first and how, you know, quickly um, I got pregnant uh, with my youngest child and how quickly he moved in you know so we 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 talked in the may and he was moved in by the july and and stuff like that so i should have should have known should have seen the red flags didn't um about three years in um it became quite verbally abusive quite coercive quite controlling and then um in about 2020, I was probably at my absolute lowest. I was also at my biggest. I'd probably ballooned to about a size 18. So I was wearing size 18 type clothes. I looked like a frumpy mother. I wasn't really taking care of myself. Um, and so in about 2020, I received a phone call in about the April time asking me to go on The Voice. And I was like, my initial reaction was no. <laughs> I immediately said no. So was um, this just out of the blue? You hadn't auditioned or had somebody... I was thinking somebody, a daughter or something, had put it in no, <laughs> without no, you knowing. Uh, what had happened was uh, a video that I had made of me singing that particular Donny Hathaway song had done the rounds on Facebook. And this researcher from ITV was a friend of a friend of a friend who had watched this video and then decided he was going to get in touch. And his name was Simon, great guy. And, um, and then he rang back and I said, well, okay, I've thought about it and I will, I will do it. Um, and so that's, that's what happened there. I, before you even get onto the TV, you have, I do believe, two online auditions. So, you know, you, you set up a Zoom or whatever, you practice a song that you're going to sing and you have to perform it in front of the head honcho kind of producer yeah. um, and a vocal coach. Um, and my particular vocal coach was called Walid, and he stayed with me throughout the whole, um, the whole of The Voice, which was lovely. Um, but yeah, so you, you have to do that first. So you don't even know whether you've got through to the live shows. There's a whole two rounds before that bit. <laughs> Oh, we saw you waltz out on TV, yeah, <laughs> straight yeah, into the yeah, studio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and I suppose that's not it either. I mean, you have to, you have to go down there. I think probably about sort of four or five weeks before, and you have um, you have to have a rehearsal with the band, and then you have to go out down there again, and you have to have a tech rehearsal, and then you go to the live. So there's a whole. <laughs> 
<laughs> production side of things that you know people aren't quite aware you don't just turn up and sing <laughs> <laughs> and what was going through your mind during those I'm guessing this is spread out over a few months were you having any doubts were you what what were you worried about during that time if so oh absolutely I was going to um not do it for all the way through that process and actually I was not even expecting to to get through to the next bit <laughs> at all I was like no I don't think so no I don't think so and then with every successive bit it was like oh you're through to the next bit I was like whoa really every time it came as a shock every time and interestingly enough the the ex-partner had encouraged me to say yes um and said you know I will be really supportive and all of that kind of stuff and then literally the night before I was due to go to Manchester to um do the uh, rehearsal for it he then said I'm not doing it I'm not supporting you I'm not looking after Emmeline I'm not doing it none of it so I then had to scramble and um you know kind of commandeer the services of my parents and my brother and stuff like that um to enable me to do it because you know he just literally pulled the plug out from you know from from it and and refused to kind of support me so yeah so it was a bit of a sticking two fingers up at him as well a little bit you know like see I can do it on my own <laughs> you know um but yeah yeah it all came as a big shock it really did so when I got to the lives it was totally surreal <laughs> I mean, you did amazing. It went so well. I mean, obviously it would because you're an amazing singer, but you went out there, you looked so strong. I didn't see any nerves. I mean, what do you see looking back? Are there signs that you were nervous or had you kind of conquered it all by that point? So the experience backstage is enough to make you absolutely terrified, I have to say. So you are sitting in a room for hours with all of the other contestants um, and you... They, they take them out one by one. About two hours before you're due on, they take away your mobile phone. So you have no contact with anybody who came with you. Um, and then one by one, all of these people just kept leaving. And you never get to find out whether or not they got through. They just leave the room. And so I was there on my own in this room thinking, God, and it's getting dark. Been there all day since like half seven in the morning and... I was thinking, like, oh, my God, what's going on, you know? And obviously, I am worst-case scenario, so I'm like, right, clearly they've got their, all of their auditionees, clearly they've got them, and they don't need me anymore. They're just going to, like, go through the motions with me and then send me home and everything's going to be, that'll be it. Um, and then they came and got me. And so I, but at that point, I was, it was terrifying. You have to walk up this really long corridor, go up a lift, <laughs> walk outside to the studio. You know, it's like a good 10-minute walk from where you sat there anyway. Um, and then and then it's just literally like you go up the stairs and you're on. It's just, it's scary. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I was terrified, absolutely terrified. Wow. Before you sing, you have to give about 40 seconds of silence before they start the song. Um, and they tell you this beforehand. So you, you're walking up to the microphone and you have to stand there and you have to stand there and stand there. And it's the longest 40 seconds ever. It feels like it, you know, before the music then then starts playing behind you. So there was all that as well. So, yeah, I was terrified. And I closed my eyes throughout the whole performance. 
<laughs> is that like something that you tell everybody don't do this <laughs> absolutely yeah look at your audience engage with your audience if they do then that were it no. <laughs> well the judges anybody. aren't looking at you in this program are they because they're facing no. away and if they like it they press the button and turn around so yeah. i guess it wasn't to your disadvantage for for the first bit it wasn't but i actually didn't want to see them turn around and i didn't want to see if they didn't turn around either. So I just kept my eyes closed. I thought that was the, the simplest thing to do. <laughs> when did you find out that they'd all turn around and you had a standing ovation? <laughs> so about halfway through, I dared to open my eyes and notice that Ollie and Tom had turned. Yeah. Then I was, I got really nervous again. So closed them. And then right at the end of the song, I opened it again. And uh, Anne-Marie was just turning around. Um, and then Will turned around at the very, like, my last note, <laughs> basically, was when he turned around. So, yeah, um, I, yeah, eyes closed for most of that performance. <laughs> wow. And then where does that kind of rank? It just feels so different from everything you've done before in terms of, like, the Bluefoot Project and mm-hmm. your work with the community choir. Like, it just seems so surreal. <laughs> I think for me, it was a bit of a now or never moment. It was a bit of a, because when I was during, uh, during 2020, I'd kind of already made it up in my mind that I wasn't going to go back to singing. I was just literally just going to run the choir and that was just going to be me. And that was going to be my hobby, just running the choir. And really it was a combination of friends reaching out to me. Uber was one of them actually saying, you do, you do know you really ought to go on The Voice, don't you? And me going, shut up, it's fine. Don't be, don't be ridiculous, you know. Um, his daughter, she also texted me, me and dad are just listening to the Bluefoot Project. You should really go on The Voice. I'm like, no, I'm not going on The Voice. But, you know, so it was, it was a, lots of people messaging me saying, why aren't you singing anymore? You know, um, and I think that was what made me think, I can either sit here and continue to be depressed and fat or I can do something about it. And, and so th- that was my catalyst to do something about it. I wouldn't have had any choice then. I had to do the most public thing <laughs> I could possibly muster and then I wouldn't have a choice in pursuing it afterwards. Does that make sense? It kind of does, but it's a, it's a well, quite a um, drastic way of doing it, isn't it? <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, don't do things by arm. <laughs> <laughs> and then you did really well on The Voice. I mean, oh, how was that whole experience? Because I'm guessing, again, was it kind of weekly for us or there was a bit of a gap in between you being on? But did that whole process, was that a bit more condensed for you? I couldn't work out the no, timing. So, so the whole process was actually over months um, oh, wow. rather, than, rather than weekly. So. Yeah, um, you did the first round and then it went quiet for a while and then they said, right, now now you've got to choose your song for your next round. Actually, the second round was the callbacks and they chose the song for us. Um, so you just got sent this copy of the song and it just went, learn it. You know, you've got to learn it. Um, so we did that and then we got invited down to run it, um, you know, our own interpretation of it. And that was really nice, actually. That was like a, a one-day... Uh, speaking to the musicians and saying to them like I want it I want to do it in a really gospel way um, and then running it a couple of times with them it, that was really fun 
Um, and then talking to the vocal coach Walid about it as well and how do you want to approach it and what's your conversation going to be and which bits are you going to emphasise because that's the bit I like that's the, it's the technical aspect of, of singing that's the bit I enjoyed so yeah so there's a lot of that then you have to do a, a, a rehearsal a few weeks later and then after that it's London so we did the callbacks in London um, and, I, and you can't take anyone with you to the callbacks either you are completely there on your own so that was strange as well um so yeah it's weeks and weeks between and then the semi-final was probably about so the callbacks happened before christmas in about the november time and then the semi-final that was filmed in like january so and this didn't come on again, our televisions till september october, october. time yeah, oh my yeah, goodness. Yeah. And did you just have to keep quiet? Like who yeah. couldn't tell a soul? Yeah, couldn't tell anybody. Nope. <laughs> that must be yeah. so hard. This kind of biggest shift in your life for so many years and you just had to keep Absolutely. it to yourself and just yeah, turn up yeah, at yeah. school on the Monday as if nothing had happened. That's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, even, um, they actually came to film part of my VT at school. Um Oh, my I definitely saw them in. I saw them in your garden. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, they were in my garden. But yeah, they, they went to school, school as well. well. Yeah, yeah, but my kids didn't believe me when I said, you know, there's going to be a film crew here tomorrow from the boys filming me, and they were like, "Shut up!" And I was like, no, <laughs> and they were like, "No, you're not going on the voice." I'm like, "No, really, I am." <laughs> and it wasn't until they actually saw them, and they were like. Are you here for Mrs. Bradley? And they were like, yeah. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what's what's life been like since the voice? You got through to the semi-final. I mean it's it's it was a while ago, so I don't think I'm a spoiler for saying yeah. that that's as far as you got, but it was amazing to to get that far and uh, yeah, it was brilliant. Absolutely. And I think as well, I think like I said before, the music industry is, is, is both male-dominated in the sense that if you're a male musician, you are able to have a family, um, earn money, work all those unsociable hours and bring home the bacon and everybody's fine and that's what's expected. But try to do that if you're a woman mm. and, and that's a whole different ball game. and I found that with both, both the kids, um, you know, almost like an accusatory, what are you doing here at this time? when you know what I mean when you've got two kids so very much that um the music industry is also very ageist and I can honestly say um as one of the oldest contestants on The Voice I think um I think Ali, um, Antonia is amazing she's an amazing singer she really really is um but she's from London and she's dead young <laughs> And, and and I feel that, and, and it's not something that I feel in isolation. It's something that a lot of people um, on the YouTube videos, if you look at the comments, a lot of them are saying that. Um, and it's it's a thought that's really crossed my mind is that did did beauty win out over age? And I think, I think it probably did. Um, and certainly I'm finding that now. Um, my captive audience are people my age, fair enough. Um, but for example, when it came to the UMAs, um, I, the, all of the performers in the UMAs were from London. All of them were London based. Um, 
all of the winners uh, were London-based, apart from uh, where they uh, gave a prize out for a category that was, you know, based in Africa or a category that was based in Canada or somewhere else. Um, they were all London-centric. Um, and, you know, the person who won the best performance on a TV show, guess what? <laughs> She's from London. So, you know, it's so... It's still exactly the same as it ever was. Oh, um, really? So I, that's that's oh, God, sad yeah. to hear that it's not moving on. Yeah. I think mainly, though, it's because the majority of music executives are still male. You know, there are very, very few female um, music executives that understand uh, the music industry. And, and the reason for that, I guess, is because they haven't been allowed to come through in, in quite the same way as the blocks have. Mm. So it's such a shame. It really is such a shame. And when I was kind of thinking of who I wanted to quiz about resilience and I asked you and then to come on here and then like almost the next day, I think you you did a post on social media that said like when you were, at, I think it was when you were at university rather than school, at university, you were told that you'd never make it in the music industry because you're too ugly yeah somebody yeah, yeah. say that to your face like yeah oh, absolutely it's because awful. it's a very it's a very real concern um that you know if you don't look a certain way then then you, you know you can't be sold and i think that's that's the thing you know you, you have to be sellable and i wasn't um a sellable product I wasn't a, the finished article I had the voice but nothing else but to me it's the only industry where also the reverse is true i.e you don't have to be a great singer <laughs> to make it in the music industry in quite the same way as you have to be a great artist to make it in the art world and you have to be a, a great sculptor to, to make it in, in the mm. you know what I mean well I'm guessing world. like I'm thinking of writers and I don't know what most of the authors that I really like look like and yeah, um, yeah it's yeah. just not part of their work is it yeah exactly so um but but in, in the music industry it is it really is and and there are a few notable exceptions um and I certainly intend to sort of capitalize on that but certainly on my on my YouTube videos as well there were there were certain people commenting and saying things like oh um 45 she looks 75 <gasps> You, a, you really don't have anything better to do with your life. And B, like, since when was this like a what does she look like competition? It was supposed to be the voice. You know, the whole premise of that competition is you are not seen. You mm. are just heard. And the reaction comes from what they hear, not from what they see. But actually, eventually, certainly during the semifinals, it then starts to be the look of the person. And I'm not sure it should be. I'm not sure it should be. No, definitely not. And it when no you... one was looking at Bach or Mozart, Bach with his 22 kids. No <laughs> one was looking at him, going, "Oh, he's a looker. Let's publish his his music." Do you know what I mean? Like, no one did that. <laughs> oh, look at Beethoven, slightly deaf, very bad tempered, but let's go with him because he's a looker. Because he wasn't. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> So it, it's a it's a, a very 20th century construct that started with I would suggest the likes of Elvis, you know he was the first kind of or one of the first poster boys 
of, of that kind of that kind of era. And it's just sort of continued. You have to look good in order to make it in the music industry. Who says? That's what annoys me. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, we're laughing at it. But I guess some of those comments, I mean, you're human. You, and maybe not the age one. But were there any other comments that actually did really knock you back, really hurt you? How did you get over those? I think you always get hurt by comments, but I think very quick, uh, very soon after you accept being on, on The Voice, um, they do give you um, a lot of support. And one of the most wonderful conversations that I had during that process was with their, uh, their job in psychologist, because you have to have an interview with the psychologist. Um, and that psychologist talks to you and asks you a series of questions. And really, it's them making an assessment on how well you're going to be able to deal with being on a show such as that. Um, and she said to me, you know, the one piece of advice I can give you is don't engage with people. If they're going to say something, just don't say anything back. Uh, because the minute you start engaging, that's when you start hurting. If you see the comment, yes, you're going to have a little bit of a, you know, oh, that's not very nice. Um, but then you'll move on and you'll quickly forget it. Whereas if you engage you're always going to go back to that comment and you're always going to look at what the reply was and, ooh, you know, that kind of thing. And that's where it starts to really have a have an impact on you is when you keep engaging. So I've, I've kind of got a bit of a golden rule now. I, I just don't, don't reply. <laughs> and, like, that sounds really positive that they had that support for you. And I'm guessing that that probably hasn't always been the case in those kind of TV shows or widening out to kind of reality shows. I mean, well, interesting enough, the, the guy who I was on with um, a lad called Reese, who was really, really lovely. He'd gone on a, a, a reality TV show and I know he doesn't want me to mention who it is. So I won't, but he'd gone on one and he'd been told he was too fat and too ugly to make it into the music industry to his face on the show. And that led to him then not singing for the following three years. Oh, how awful. Like, what the hell? You know, the, the impact somebody's words can have. You know that horrible saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's utter, utter rubbish. It really is. Because words do hurt you possibly, arguably, more than sticks and stones do. Because mm. your wounds from that will heal and you'll remember it as a bit of trauma and that wasn't very nice. But if somebody says something to you, that can really impact you. It really can. So, yeah, that, that happened to him. And that's why he went on The Voice, to, to get some sort of validation, which is awful. Mm. Yeah. And how, how do you think you'd cope? Like, you know, 20 years ago... Part, well, not that. Well, yeah, it was 20 years ago, wasn't it? Like, yeah, Blue yeah, Foot Project. I was like, hang on, surely it was only 10 years ago. <laughs> no, no, no. We are that old. Jen. 20 years ago, I think, I don't think the voice was around, but definitely, like, I remember sort of X Factor coming and I'm not sure if there were other ones around. I mean, do you think what would have happened if you'd have gone on then? Or was it just not a possibility because you didn't have the confidence? Um, or was it just that naivety, that 20-year-old? Would it have been such a different outcome? I think for me, the, re the, the difference between the voice and the X Factor as I saw it, because, yeah, I was asked to go on the X Factor as well um, by, by those producers. But unfortunately, with the X Factor... 
because they audition everybody and because it's part of the fun aspect of the show to actually victimise and take the mickey out of people who actually really can't sing, I just wanted no part of that. And, and actually, you couldn't be too sure that if you went on there, you weren't going to fall foul of that as well. Um, a wonderful, wonderful singer I know uh, called Michelle Lawson, who is unbelievable. She is unbelievable. And she went on The X Factor and she did a song. Um, and all right, she, she riffed a lot in that song and she, she did a lot of like, you know, vocal gymnastics as it were. But really it was an audition. So, you know, as a singer, you, you realise that at an audition, you've got to show what you can do. You've only got a couple of minutes to do it. So you just cram everything in. Uh, you know, and, and that's exactly what she did. And she got slated for it. And she didn't even get through the first round. And quite frankly, you know, her voice, aside of everybody else's on that show that's ever been on that show, is leaps and bounds better. But, you know, she was vilified. It was horrible. Oh, horrible. That sounds really cruel, the kind of whole mm-hmm. aspect of the show, I suppose, because I hadn't really watched The X Factor. I didn't realise the difference. Um, but, it, yeah, it definitely sounds like you were well supported I mean did it open up opportunities coming straight off the voice although it was straight off I mean for tv you'd have done that a year ago (laughs) yeah um it it has uh some obviously uh all of the solo stuff um I'd had been being written um but now Newman Records has, has taken that on um and my first single will be coming out with them uh in a month or so um, so there's that side of it. I've also got um, a manager as well, which is nice, uh, called Ben, who's lovely. Um, and, and he, at the minute, is, is, he's got his fingers in lots of pies and he's kind of trying to think about um, a solo tour um, for me, which is lovely. Um, so, yeah, little opportunities have come, come you know, come my way. Um, I don't think I've, I've ever really been one to have stuff handed to me on a plate but it's been quite nice to have um yeah a few people sort of approach me and say oh could you do this um there's also a a guy called john who um is brilliant and he was a songwriter and he sent me one of his songs um and i've just recorded that so i'm going to put that out on my social media um and yeah uh ideas for podcasts and and that sort of thing as well so yeah it's been been great and the Bluefoot Project have reformed and, and the, the band are back reformed. together. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. It's almost like we've come full circle. But what's great about it is um, we decided we wanted a, 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 a concept for the new album. And so the new album is going to be about being an adult. <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh, yeah, being an adult and doing all the things that you, you, you have to do uh, but then looking back with some nostalgia at the old days of, you know, Haciendas and <laughs> crazy times and festivals and things like that and just missing it, you know, because mm. you are allowed to miss it, aren't you? You know, yeah. and I do miss it. I wouldn't go back there, but I do miss it. <laughs> so, yeah, so the album's very much about that. Yeah. And... You talked about when we were talking about that kind of lead up to you going to The Voice that you're in a pretty unhappy place and 
didn't like how you were looking and things like that. Has that changed, that outlook? I think I remember you posting um, that part of your journey on The Voice was about that kind of acceptance of yourself. And I just wondered if you had something to say about that part of it. I think when you grow up um, in an ultra-Christian household, uh, one of the things that you carry with you is um, a bit of self-loathing, uh, a bit of guilt, and um, and also always feeling inadequate um, because you've just got this big entity to look up to all the time and everything's about that entity and, and nothing else matters. Um, and so if you want to pursue other things, you're kind of made to feel like you are forsaking that big entity. Um, and so over the years, I've carried with me self-doubt, self-loathing, um, not feeling like I'm good enough, all of those sorts of things, because that's how, through no fault of their own, that's how you're made to feel when you're a child and you want to explore things. Well, why did you do that? Because, because I wanted to. And Well, that's not good enough. And, you know, you don't do that. You're always being told that you're wrong. So you carry some of that into, into adulthood. Um, and so sometimes when, when things get tough, um, you can you can almost be a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy and start to slightly abuse yourself. In my case, it was with food and and just not really looking after myself um, very much. And so, yeah, um, it's taken me a long time. Um, yep, the voice was very much about validation and self-acceptance. Um, new relationship with Uva, something that I would never have thought would have happened uh, in the past is happening which you know sometimes I still get a bit of imposter syndrome there because he was always the cool guy who had all the girls um, when we were growing up it was it's true um, uh, in fact I've got a funny story to uh, to tell you about a, a gig but I'll, I'll tell you that afterwards so yeah you, you do uh, this experience with the voice has made me like myself a little bit more has made me accept myself a little bit more, which I'm really grateful for, still really grateful for. Yeah, it suddenly seems, well, I mean, you've got some social media accounts that you didn't have before. It seems like you've embraced exactly. putting yourself out there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Great exactly. to see. Great to see. Yeah, you've been yeah. hiding learning. too long. <laughs> we all are. It's fine. <laughs> and just thinking back, I mean, it's still heartbreaking that girl at university or that woman at university that was told that she'd never make it in the industry. I mean, what advice do you give somebody, those young people that really want to make a career in the music industry? I think it's probably a lot easier uh, nowadays to, to at least earn money from being a musician um, than it ever was uh, before, I think because we've got social media and so with children in particular with with kids that, that come up to me and ask me for for any advice i always say keep on top of social media get yourself out there get yourself noticed because the more followers you generate people can't ignore it then um there's a band in wakefield uh who you might be aware of called skinny living no but i'm not one of the cool people <laughs> they, they i will look them up they are purely, into, they have millions of followers. A record company hasn't picked them up though. They haven't been, you know, signed. They don't have a massive album deal. What they've got is a massive fan base 
that's very, very, very loyal. And they monetize off that. And so they don't need, you know, I think the time is coming, if I'm, if I'm honest, where record companies are going to start to become obsolete because people are just not going to need them anymore because you can already set up Spotify accounts. You can already put your stuff on um, uh, various platforms that will then distribute it, them to Apple Music and, and YouTube and things like that. You can already do all those things. And it's the distribution that the record company would help you with. Yeah, you can also record from your own home now, um, which is, you know, you don't have to get up and go to a studio anymore. It's all there. So I always say, get as clued up as you can possibly get on tech, on being able to record yourself, on being able to write your own music, on being able to put it out there, on being able to distribute it, learn about that, the business side of it, and the rest will take care of itself. That seems really, really hopeful in that you were talking about the barriers of having those males at the top of the industry. I mean, does this, hopefully, this means that it can open up to a wider variety of people if it is more of that kind of self business self um, distribution or is this just meaning that the tech savvy very good looking <laughs> people get in is it still it's not going to be perfect is it I'm guessing it's never going to be perfect and I think you'll always you know where, where you get a personality you know they're always going to strive to look good because that's what you that's that's what the nature of the beast isn't it um but actually, for those of us who, you know, aren't so concerned with that and who want people to see us for the musicians that we are, I think it's a great, great platform because, you know, first and foremost, I paid uh, £10 to Facebook to boost a post of mine and I ended up with a thousand more followers. Mm. It's and and that's, that is what you should be doing, in my opinion. Don't rely on the big wigs at A&R and record companies. Just rely on yourself and somebody will pick it up. There are a new breed of record company also opening up as well. Like my uh, Newman Records is a brilliant, brilliant record company. It's actually uh, the founder is Moses from Zero Seven. Oh, I love I've got his solo albums as well. I love him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he is, he is the head of Newman Records. So, um... And his philosophy, it's not about, he doesn't want to get involved and start telling me what to wear and do and say and things like that. All he wants to do is to, to use the platform that, that Newman has got to elevate my music. And I think as a model, as a business model for a, a new breed of record label, that's it, isn't it? Mm. It's like, I'm going to use my contacts to elevate you. That's what I'm going to do. And then we'll think about an album later down the line. Um, and we'll think about physical copies later down the line. Right now, it will be a digital release and it will be me promoting you. And that's great. That's, that's fantastic. And what a star-studded yeah. phone contacts you've now got, Sir Tom. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't got his telephone number, though, to be fair. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right, you shattered that. I thought you were busy mates but now. He's a lovely man. He's a lovely man who likes a Yorkshire accent. <laughs> <laughs> 
you don't have to be from London to impress Tom. <laughs> no, no. In fact, actually, I think he probably prefers it if you're not, but obviously it didn't work for me on that night, did it? But, oh, yeah, yeah. You did so well. <laughs> Are you going to tell us this gig story or... <laughs> Just, I mean, I could so probably cut it out if it's not suitable. <laughs> no, absolutely. No, I, it could be fine. Uh, we, we used to play gigs all the time uh, in the Blueprint Project. We used to gig practically every weekend. Um, and, you know, I, I was the lead singer of the band. So obviously at the end of the gig, you know, you expect your little following of people to be at the front of the stage, ready to have a wonderful conversation with you. Um, but no, this is not what happened because what would happen is I would go back out on stage to meet my adoring fans. People would call me over and they'd go, hi, Rachel. Oh my God, you were amazing. This is brilliant. Could you do us a favor? And I'd go, what's that? Could you just go backstage and get Uber, please? <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. That's fine. So I'd have to go backstage. And... By the way... <laughs> They don't want to see me. <laughs> You've got him now. You've got him now. <laughs> so you've already talked about the, the record deal, but is there any, well, what's the best way for people to follow you? And is there anything else exciting coming up? So you can definitely follow me on, on, on Facebook um, and anything exciting coming up will always be posted to that anyway. But yes, yeah, so coming up, I've got, uh, I'm going to be doing some vi little video shorts about singing technique and about the bits of technique that I love and um, showing people a few bits and pieces on how to get the best out of their voice. So I'm going to be doing a little bit of that um, over on Instagram. And then I've also got a, a podcast coming up where I'm literally going to be talking to ordinary people about the soundtrack of their lives. Oh, so that sounds fantastic. Ten tracks. <laughs> Um, and they're going to talk about those their lives in terms of those 10 tracks. And there'll be a little Spotify playlist for people to go over to and, and have a listen to the tracks as well. What a fantastic idea. Has that got a name yet, or is that still early development? But I think it's going to be called Soundtrack of Your Life. I, <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's that self-explanatory, I guess. I it's mean. pretty self you know what I mean? I'm not putting on any airs. <laughs> I think I can see what you've done there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll, <laughs> I'll definitely look out for that. It sounds fantastic. And thank you so much, Rachel, for coming and chatting to us about all things oh, resilience my today. My pleasure. I'm off to do the school run now. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you're a glamorous, you know, famous singer now. <laughs> glamorous singers don't do school runs. Yes, we do. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Resilience Rising podcast. If you have enjoyed this episode, please do help people find us by hitting subscribe, leaving a review or sharing us with others. Thank you so much and see you next time on the Resilience Rising podcast.